As mentioned last week, the last five chapters of the book of Judges are some of the most unique chapters, not just in this little book, but in all of the Old Testament, or even just the Bible at large. They're unique because they, they seem to break from just the general flow of, of Judges. We get to the last five chapters, and there's two things that are noteworthy. One, we've, we've completely abandoned chronology. One of the things that the book of Judges covering this 400, 450 year period of Jewish history has done well for us is that we've, we've examined different judges and different time periods, but in sequence, in order. It's helped us keep kind of a flow of the narrative. And, and chapter 16 ends with the, really the last judge before Samuel, and that's Samson. But then you get to chapter 17, and, and we've completely broken any chronology. We know that uh, because of some of the, the indicators, some of the people mentioned in the stories uh, clearly place these two narratives. In 17 and 18, is kind of one story. Uh, 19, 20, and 21 is like a second story. One deals with spiritual corruption. The other one deals with moral corruption. The, the timing of both stories, um, scholars seem to be pretty unanimous in placing it kind of before the judges. So we have, we have Joshua leading the people uh, into the land of Israel, settling the people in the land of Israel. There being this dividing up of the territory amongst the tribes, every tribe giving a particular allotment. And then we roll into this period of the judges ending with the death of Joshua. But these two stories seem to place chronologically at the very beginning, which leads us to a question, you know, why are they at the end when we've been so bent on chronology. The other thing that's interesting about these chapters, especially by placing them in a book called Judges, is the, the eerie absence of any judges. Like we don't have any judges in either story. So it's very clear that, that, that this section, some will call it an appendix. The author's attempt to try to give the audience an insight and to the spiritual and, and moral uh, atmosphere and climate of these 400 years. That, that you know, it's intentionally at the end, um, kind of as a tag along. I, I kind of disagree a little bit with the synopsis in, in the sense that, that I think that the intention of probably Samuel, who's the author, in my opinion, would, would be for this to be a prologue, for this to be at the beginning of the book. And yet, as I noted last Sunday, if, if you were to place these chapters at the beginning of Judges, two things would inevitably happen. One, uh, you would quit reading the book. <laughs> you would never get to the Judges because you'd be so appalled and disgusted by what you encounter. You'd be like, I, I, you know, I'm skipping this book, we're going to go to Beautiful Ruth. Just bailing on judges altogether. The other thing that would probably happen, if you did get through them, and then you get to the judges part, you would be really, really conflicted. Because in your mind, you would be like, wait a second. How can God be just and righteous and holy and tolerate this nonsense? Like the very idea of God raising up deliverers for his people in this climate, well, it just deepens your understanding of grace. So the legalists would have a problem. God, you should be judging them and destroying them and starting over, not delivering them. So I think for that intention, Samuel is like, you know, I can't put this at the beginning. 
So we'll tack it at the, at the end, just to relay, again, the spiritual and the moral climate. There's a passage that becomes very difficult in light of the last three chapters. I'll, I'll read it for you. I was thinking of it this morning, driving in. Paul writing, and this is at the end of his ministry, writing to a protege, a brother in the Lord named Timothy. Paul, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it's all inspired of God. It's God breathed and is profitable. Like there's a benefit, there's a profit. We get something from it profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness that the man of God or the woman may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, you get to these three chapters in light of what Paul writes to Timothy and you're like, were you thinking of this when you said all scripture? What can we possibly get out of this? Now, without any further to do, we're going to just work our way through the story, three chapters, and we're going to leave time at the end, Lord willing, for some reproof, some correction, something profitable that we can take away from the story. So chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, buckle up. It's, Judges is weird. It's about to get weirder. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. And we're going to find that refrain. We've seen it repeated throughout the book. You'll find it mentioned more frequently in, in these chapters. So there's no king. That there was a certain Levite staying in, a remote, in the remote mountains of Ephraim. And he took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. A concubine, this is kind of an, an interesting thing. This is not a, a, a wife. This is more of like, to pardon an expression, uh, a stripper girlfriend. Um, this is a lover. Um, there was, um, she was not marrying quality, but definitely uh, shacking up quality. And so we have like right from the jump here, a weird scenario where you've got a Levite. And again, th these, are, these are the people that were supposed to be about the work of God. These are the, the preachers, the pastors, the ministers of the day. And, and right from the beginning, again, early on in the story, we find a certain Levite taking for himself a concubine. We're not off to a good start. But his concubine played the harlot against him. Shocking words. And went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. So Levite hooks up with concubine. They have fun. Concubine's like, peace out, plays the harlot, cheats on him, and runs back to her father's house. Told you we were going to get weird. Then her husband, and it's interesting, it refers to the Levite as her husband, arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. <clears throat> and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, 
detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. And there's, there's kind of this component. So imagine you're the father of the concubine. Um, she's a concubine. Uh, that's, that's not great. You know, having a daughter that's a whore. And she hooks up with a Levite and going off and doing, and, he, and he's like, at least she's with a stable man. And she's not in my house anymore. And then what happens? She comes back to his house because she's done what whores do. She slipped, slipped around, and now father has concubine again. So he's ecstatic when the Levite, after a period of time, shows up and says, hey, even though she's cheated on me and she's insulted me, I still want to take her back. And for that father, you're like, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord, this is a good guy. So he's hanging out with the father-in-law, the servants there, the concubine. Verse four, his father-in-law, the young woman's father detained him. He stayed three days, they ate, they drank, they lodged, they partied. And it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterwards you can go. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, the father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. So he arose, and this is the second time, early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine, his servant, the father-in-law, the young woman's father said to him, look, The day is now drawing towards evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came to opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys, his concubine, also with him, and and we'll know that the servant is there as well. So the man's intending to get home. He's gone to retrieve this concubine. He wants to leave. The father-in-law wants him to tarry. This lasts for five days, this tit for tat, this kind of, this thing, eat and drink. And then it's like, hey, you're probably a little tipsy to be driving that donkey. Um, You should stay the night. Um, You don't want to get a donkey DUI on the roads, you know, late at night. Um, But we're finally at this point, like the fifth day, he's like, he gets detained, but he's like, we're leaving. Now, the whole intention here of like leaving in the morning and not the afternoon is that this is ancient Middle Eastern culture. Uh, It's dangerous to travel at night. Like you need a place to stay. You need lodging. It's not like there's a lot of La Quinta's on the way. So traveling at night gets dicey. You want to spend most of your time during the day, which is why he wants to get an early start, but he's kind of had it. He's over it. We're rolling. So we're told verse 11 that they were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, come, please let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of God. We will go on to, to Geba. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Geba, or in Ramah, 
And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Geba, which belongs to Benjamin, so the tribe of Benjamin. So they turned aside there to go in to lodge in Geba. And when he went in, he sat in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. And so the dynamic here, they're making their way. They're not going to get to their destination. They need a place to stay. The sun is setting. The servant's like, hey, let's turn into this Jebusite village. But the Levite's like, well, they're, they're foreigners. Uh, they're pagans. Uh, they're not going to treat us with the same kind of hospitality that, that our brethren would. We need to push on a little further. Let's try to find a town of the Israelites, of our, of our kin. And so there's some logic to that. That makes sense. So they move and they get to Geba, which is a town of the Benjaminites. So Benjamin, one of the sons of Jacob, Jacob's name's changed to Israel. So this is one, the, the family of Benjamin is one of the tribes of Israel. They have an allotment, a territory. Geba is one of their cities. So they go into the town and they go into the open square. Now the law was very clear on how the Hebrew people were to treat the stranger, the sojourner, the traveler. Again, there's not motels, hotels, holiday inns, right? So they need hospitality. They come into town, they go to the open center of the city, and they're kind of posting up, expecting, waiting for someone to say, hey, come lodge with us, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you. But nothing's, nothing's happening, nothing's driving. This is a great insult. There's zero hospitality. I hope you know, just as kind of an aside, that Christians... But the Bible says we, we should be known by our love for one another. And part of that component is our hospitality. Like our, our willingness to be hospitable, to take care of the people that, that come. You can really tell someone that, that is just bubbling with Jesus by the way that they treat people that come into their home. Like there are some of you that just have the gift of hospitality. And when you go over to your house, like it, it doesn't matter. Like you're not bringing food, you're not bringing drink. You are in my home, and you are my guest, and you're my responsibility. And there's a Christ-like hospitality that comes with that. And I, I love that. I think that that's a characteristic of the people of God. Hey, none of it's yours. It's all His. So use it as such. So they're in kind of a dicey situation. Verse 16. So an old man came, and from his work in the field at evening. It was also from the mountains of Ephraim. So he's kind of a, a kindred spirit. He was staying in Geba, whereas the men of the place were Benjaminites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, hey, where are you going? And where do you come from? Where do you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Anyway, we've we got to bring some humor to this. I actually highlighted that and then wrote Cotton Eye Joe next to it. Just, it was, it ministered to me. Verse 18. So he said, when we were passing from Bethlehem and Judah towards the remote mountains of Ephraim, I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord. So he's going to Shiloh. But there is no one who will take me into the house. So there's no hospitality here. Although we have both straw, we have fodder for our donkeys, we have bread, we have wine for myself, for female servant, for the young man who is with your servant. There is no lack in anything. So he's like, hey, we have our own stuff. The old man said, peace be with you, shalom. However, let your needs be my responsibility 
only do not spend the night in the open square. So we brought him into his house and gave fodder for the donkeys. They washed their feet. They ate. They drank. So they settled in for the night. Verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly, certain men of the city, and now we're told of these men, that they were perverted. They surrounded the house and they beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. So they come and they want this Levite. And what do they want to do? They want to rape him. They want to take advantage of him. They want to abuse him. Now, does this sound similar to another story that we find in the Old Testament? Yes. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah, a very similar situation is playing forth, and I think that's intentional here. For reference, Genesis 19 records the event. And again, keep in mind the shocking nature of this. This is not the the, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the Benjaminites. These are the people of God. This is literally the generation whose parents died out in the wilderness because of their unbelief, This is the generation that has been allowed into the land, has settled in the land. It's either them or just their kids. We are like grandparents away from Sinai. And we see this moral decay and depravity. Here they are. They Not only did they not show hospitality to the Levite, but now they want to abuse him in the most vile of ways. And this is the people of God. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them, just like Lot, and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them. Do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning. And fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And they knew her and abused her. And the Hebrew language, what's being described here, doesn't translate well into English. In fact, most Hebrew scholars knowing this, intentionally kind of neuter the English translation to try to remove a little of the the shock value, the provocative nature of it. In fact, there have been Christian scholars and translators throughout the, the centuries, such as Adam Clark, that refused to even translate this into English. They come for the Levite, they want to rape him. They don't care about the virgin daughter. The man gives them the concubine, 
and they abuse her and they rape her and they sodomize her and they take advantage of her and they beat her all night long. Horrific. And who are they? These are the people of the covenant. These are God's people. Again, not Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the Benjaminites. So they let her go as the morning came to dawn. She comes to the door of the master's house, verse 27, and when her master arose in the morning, which by the way, gives you a lot of insight into this man. A, he, he gave her away in such a, uh, such a regard, and then he slept. Then he went in and slept. And he woke up in the morning, and he opened the doors of the house and went to go out his way, and there was the concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. You get to scene what she must have looked like. She couldn't get in. And so the Levite says to her, get up and let us be going. Kind words. Such tenderness. But there was no answer. And the implication being that she was dead. So realizing what happened, the man lifts her onto the donkey. And the man got up and went to his place. And he entered his house and he took a knife. And he laid hold of his concubine and he divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all of the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day, consider it, confer, and speak up. Kind of odd that the Levite gets all self-righteous at this juncture. I mean, he's been an, an equal part of the disaster. He's got blood on his own hands, both literally and figuratively. And he wants to communicate to the nation of Israel where things were at. He wants the people to know how far they had fallen. He wants to send a shocking message. So he takes this woman back to his place and he cuts her into 12 pieces and FedExes her across the nation. So you get in the mail a box and you open it up and there is a limb and a note. Now, I should address a curiosity. I know you have. It's okay. I had it too. And I know you feel bad for thinking it, so we're just going to all feel bad together. How do you cut a body into 12 pieces? I've gone through this scenario multiple times. You can get to 11 easily. It's very hard to get to 12. You can get to 13. 12 is a weird number, meaning that that 12th piece was funky looking. Just saying. It was a part of a part. In your mind, you're thinking it. You're like, one, two, three, just on your own. I did some Googling on it. I'm on a watch list now. That's okay. <laughs> How do you cut a body into 12 pieces? You do so because the 12th piece, it's a part of something. The only way you can get there. 
12 pieces sent out to the children of Israel. Shock. So verse 1 of chapter 20, all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mitzvah. And the elders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now this is an assembly. The effect that the Levite is wanting by sending this message has ginned up the right response. The people are collectively outraged. By the way, if you're sending 12 pieces, that means the tribe of Benjamin got a piece. Right? And so they rally together. There's 400,000, a 400,000-man army has gathered. They are righteously enraged. A righteous anger. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mitzvah. And the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So they want the Benjamite side. They want the Levite side. Well, the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, he said, now now check out his rendition of the story. He says, my concubine and I went into Geba, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. The men of Geba arose around me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. Um, not quite the story, right? I mean, I mean, what gets left out of the story? His involvement entirely. So then he explains, I took hold, verse 6, of my concubine. I cut her into pieces. I sent her throughout all of the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed this lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look. All of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent nor any will turn back to his house. But now this thing, which we will do to Geba, we will go up against it by lot. We will take 10 men out of every hundred throughout all of the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand and a thousand out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Geba and Benjamin, they may repay all of the vileness that they had done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as a man. This is an outrage. This can't be tolerated. Action is required. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all of the tribes of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Geba, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Geba to go to battle against the children of Israel. For their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Geba who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were, and this is such an interesting detail, left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So we have 400,000 on one side. We have 26,700 men of the Benjamites. They come, hey, give us the perverted men. We'll put them to death. You know, vengeance. Justice will be served. But the Benjamins, 
Benjaminites are like, take a hike. We're not, we're not going to capitulate to this. We're not going along with this. They decide they're going to protect their own. And so you have these two now warring factions. You've got 11 tribes, numbering 400,000 men, are now about to battle the Benjamites, who are 26,700 men. Now we're given a detail, though, about the 700 select men. Because they were left-handed, which seems to be a genetic trait of the Benjaminites. And they were experts with the sling, meaning they could throw a stone and hit within a hair's breadth. And, and in the day, that's like, that's the M16. I mean, this, you don't have to engage in hand-to-hand combat. If you can throw a stone from a distance with pinpoint accuracy, you have a significant advantage and a wartime dynamic. People are running at you with swords, you're throwing rocks at a distance. And if you're good with it, like David and Goliath, hey, you can take down anyone with good aim. Again, I should just remind you, the children of Israel have just entered the land. They've just been given allotments. They've just settled. Before God uses the Amorites, the Philistines, before he uses any of the other people groups, just like we've seen throughout Judges, there's civil war. So the children of Israel, verse 18, arose and went to the house of God to inquire of God, which is a good thing to do. First time we've actually seen this in the book. And they said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first, which is exactly what God said in Judges chapter one, that who's, it was the kingly tribe of Judah that was supposed to be leading the charge, was supposed to be acting as the leader, as the military. But God res- responds, hey, who should go up? God says, let Judah go. Judah first. So the children of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Geba, and the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. So this is the first battle. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against Geba, and the children of Benjamin came out of Geba, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Zero deaths from the Benjaminites, 22,000 die of the Israelites. Hey, God! There's been this atrocity, this outrage, a righteous indignation. We're going to act. We're going to do something. Who should we send first? Judah. They get slaughtered. (laughs) Um, God, did we misunderstand? So the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. And the children of Israel went up and went before the Lord until evening and counseled of the Lord saying, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? All right, God, what what are we doing here? And the Lord said, go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin. This is the second battle on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Geba on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel, all these who drew the sword. So we've lost 22,000. Now we lose 18,000 in the second battle. Benjamin is rocking and rolling. So the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God, and they wept. 
And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offering, peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. And and we're told as an aside that the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days. That's where we get our timing. So they're going to the tabernacle to inquire of the Lord, and who is the high priest? It's the grandson of Aaron. And much like this, the earlier story, places in the timeline of, of Jonathan being the grandson of Moses, we find, I mean, this is very early. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the Ark of the Covenant. So they, they come, they, shall I again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Now, it's interesting that this is the first time that the children of Israel generally come before the Lord and inquire what his will is. If you, if you dig into the, the two previous requests, they come with their plan saying, God, is that all right? I send Judah. Yeah, go into battle. Uh, the, the prayer, the request of God has no intention of, of what really is God's will, but it's like, God, we want you to approve ours. And, you know, I think that there are some times that we come to God not seeking his will, but we want his stamp of approval on ours. And the easiest way for God to teach us that that's the wrong way to approach him him, is to let us do it. And then fail. Oh, man. It's the third time they change their prayer. They're seeking God's will. So the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. And there is some faith here, right? You got to get it on the part of the Israelites because first two times God said go and they got slaughtered. Third time you're thinking, eh, you know, how will this, why don't you guys go and we'll watch. So Israel set men in ambush around Geba. This is the third battle. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day, put themselves in battle array against Geba as the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes to Bethel and the other which goes to Geba and in the field about 30 men of Israel. So this is the beginning of the battle. Verse 32, and the children of Benjamin said, they, they are defeated before us, as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So an ambush. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Geba, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord, and again, this Jehovah, defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjaminites. All these drew the sword. And I'll know in the end, there was judgment for the wickedness of the Benjaminites. But who enacted that judgment? 
The text is very clear. Was it the rest of Israel? Was it Judah? No, it was the Lord. Now he used the children of Israel to be his instrument, but God enacted judgment. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjaminites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they set against Geba. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Geba. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn and battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. When the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjaminites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Geba towards the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. And they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gedon and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and stayed at the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found, They also set fire to all the cities that they came to. Now, what's being described here is a bit excessive. (laughs) Okay, we we, we understand what led us into the conflict. We understand what precipitated a civil war. We we get the conflict and and what what brought it to being. We even get the reality that God's trying to teach the, the, the children of Israel some important lessons about seeking his will, not trying to impose theirs on God, not seeking God's approval for their intention, but seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They suffer defeats. They learn some lessons. God delivers Benjamin into their hands when it's all said and done, for they were wicked and they were vile and they deserved the retribution that was was necessary. But what then happens and what we see towards the end of the chapter is you have this tribe one of the 12. And they have suffered an incredible loss militarily to the point that we've got like some 700, 600 men that have fled into the wilderness. But instead of just laying it there, the rest of Israel goes back into the, the land of Benjamin and they commit genocide. I mean, I mean, effectively they go in and they kill everyone. Man, woman, child, beast, city, they destroy it, they flatten it all. Did God tell them to do any of that? Not at all. God was going to judge. That was appropriate. Battle, necessary. 
But what happens is excessive. It is not what God intended. And as a result, as we turn to the next chapter, leaves us with a big problem. Because you just annihilated an entire tribe. And there's only 600 men left. And there ain't no women. Verse 1. I told you we were going to get to three chapters. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at mitzvah, so before the battle, saying none of us shall give his daughters to Benjamin as a wife. (laughs) Not a good oath. This will bite them hard. God didn't ask for this. So the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel? That today there should be one tribe missing in Israel. Uh, Because you did it is the answer. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, who is there among all of the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the house of the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who, shall, who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? So again, they have this problem. They've made this oath. The Benjaminites are not getting any of our women. That seems like a good plan. Seems righteous. God didn't ask for it, but they were taking their oath seriously. Now they've got 600 men of Benjamin left, but they are not going to give any of their wives because they, they had this oath. They're in a quandary. What shall we do? Verse 8. So they said, well, what is, what is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to mitzvah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come up to the camp from Jebish, Gilead, to the assembly. So, so what they're saying, all right, we were all together in this oath. Was anyone missing? Was there any town, any province, any group that didn't send the appropriate representatives and weren't part of the oath? Because we need to find some women somewhere. Well, Jabesh Gilead. For when the people were counted, indeed not one of the inhabitants of Gibish Gilead was there. So they pull out the books and they're like, hey, we've got a loophole. Now, is God present in this? Has God given any instructions in this? Is God voicing an opinion in this? Are you highlighting any words from God? No. So the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So we're only keeping the virgins. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. What? I mean, are you tracking with me? 
hey, we've got this problem. We've all made this solemn oath. We're not going to give any of our wives to the Benjaminites. But we kind of went a little too crazy with the Benjaminites. We killed everyone. Now they've got 600 dudes that need wives or the tribe's no longer going to be over, but we can't give any of our women because we made this oath. Pull up the books. Let's just get the rolls, see if anyone was out. Oh, this one town. All right, great. Let's send some in. Let's kill everyone. These are their brethren. <laughs> this is not a, another, another faction or another pagan. These are their own people. Annihilate the town, except for the virgins, and bring them back as captives for what? So that they can give them as brides to these Benjamin. Now, now we have a problem, right? That it's 400, but you got what? 600 dudes. So the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who are at the rock of Ramon, announced peace with them. So Benjamin came back at the time. They gave them the woman who they had saved alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. The Lord had not done so. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do? For wives, for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed. So we got 200 left. What do we do? Well, that's a problem. Get 200 guys that need wives. Verse 17. So they said there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. This can't be. That a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we can't give them our wives from daughters. For the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, curse be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. They could have repented of that. Verse 19, then they said, in fact, this is the craziest thing. I, 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 I do think there's some dating advice here, but. All right, we need 200 more women. So they said, and, you know, there's this yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So they're like, we can't give any of our daughters for the remaining 200. But that doesn't mean they can't take their own. But we, we need like a good scheme for this. So, you know, there's this festival that happens near Shiloh. So they instructed, verse 20, the children of Benjamin, saying, go, Lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war, for it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of the oath. We found the workaround. So the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those whom dance, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. That's the craziest thing. We can't give you wives, but you know the loophole is you can, you can take one. And in fact, there's this festival and they specifically send out the virgins to go dance in a vineyard. So if you lie in high and wait, just get your pick of the litter and go back home. Clearly God's okay with this. 
It's bonkers. Like it should be shocking and repulsive. The, the people of God close out the book. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance, which would then lead into the book of Judges. And as we've seen, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. How in the world do we pull anything out of this that is profitable? But I think we do. I think this intends to be shocking. In fact, for the children of Israel, I mean, this is a shot across the bow. Because of all the stories of antiquity, of all the stories of the past, of all the stories of the patriarchs, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of all the stories that kind of just rung true of God and his righteousness, is what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Where God goes to destroy the city and Abraham meets with God and says, God, you can't do such a thing. And, and Abraham ends up with this bartering thing. If there's 10 righteous, will you spare the city? God says yes, knowing there wasn't. And we see this wickedness. And then, and then you have the judgment of God. An atomic bomb from heaven being dropped, annihilating everything. And the Jewish people is like, that's what they deserved. That's what they should get. Those pagan, those wicked people. And then you get this story soon after they get to the land where they do the exact same thing. And what's the point? You have just the same capacity for wickedness as they do. You see, the only thing that made Israel different from any of the other nations was to be a relationship they had with God. But what do we find? We find illustrated in these chapters that they are detached from a relationship with God. They are uninterested in a relationship with God. There is no king, meaning there's no authority. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Please understand. Everyone serves someone. And the great lie of Genesis, the great lie in the garden, is that you could be your own God but you will serve something. And when there is no king, when there is no authority, when we are not in a proper position with God, understand you are capable of any type of iniquity. You see, the lesson of, of judges in general is what happens when we detach ourselves from a divine authority. Now, it's easy to take that idea, to talk about that idea, to place that idea from like a national perspective. And again, what was brilliant about our founding fathers was that yes, we had a country founded on liberty and freedom, the, the right to pursue what made one happy. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But it was all premised, the whole idea of freedom in the American concept the individual freedom was based on God. That there was a God 
and he had an authority over the individual. One nation under God was the entire premise. It's what gave there a framework of morality, a framework of righteousness, a framework for what is good. But we live in a country that wants to have the framework, but we've removed God from the equation. Meaning what? Everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes, and this is what you get. One of, one of the things that just it blows my mind, we, we see something terrible happen. And as Americans, we immediately want to blame something. Easiest example, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to get political here, whatever. We see a mass shooting. Boom, you have one side of the, of, of the political spectrum that blames the gun. We got to blame the gun because we blame the gun. There are solutions. We can remove the guns. We can limit access to guns. And that will solve the problem. We, blame, we have to blame something because that gives us a remedy. The, the right does it in the same way. Well, it's mental illness. It's mental illness. It's, 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 there's not enough guns. Like we, we, we blame the same, we blame other things, but we blame things. We always are trying to find something to blame because it provides us solutions for our own salvation, as opposed to stepping back and saying, you know what, there is evil, and this is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. If we can't accept the reality that evil exists, that sometimes just bad things happen because there's evil in this world. We're fooling ourselves. Like there's no example in the history of humanity where you can be a nation, detach yourself from a higher divine authority and survive. So it's easy to talk in big terms like that, to apply this, though there was no king in Israel, and to talk about how that the, the application is for us from a national standpoint, bring it down to you. You are meant to be ruled. When the Bible talks about liberty, when the Bible talks about freedom, in our minds, we think freedom is escape from authority. That's how we think about it. When we think about liberty, I've been, I've, I'm free from an authority. I'm free. I don't, I'm not accountable to anything or anyone else. I could do what I want. I could do what's right in my own eyes. But when the Bible talks about liberty, when it talks about freedom, it's speaking, especially in the New Testament context, to a world that is predominantly slaves. You see, freedom for a slave isn't the escape of authority. It's the freedom to choose one's authority. That's what freedom is. That's what liberty is. You are a slave to something or someone. Jesus doesn't free you from authority. He says, I will be a much better authority. That's why we give our lives to Jesus. That's why we surrender. I, I, one of my best, favorite postures in worship is this. It's not trying to reach into heaven. It's because I'm saying, I'm, I give up. I surrender. Like someone walks in with a gun, don't shoot. I'm surrendering. I'm not trying to reach to heaven. I'm saying, Lord, I surrender. I know what I'm capable of apart from you. And I need to be ruled and reigned by you. If you don't think you're capable of, of wickedness, do what's right in your own eyes and see what happens. See, we read this, well, in those days there was no king in Israel. 
you know, the, the, again, the, the irony of the story, after this, guess what is introduced to Israel? A king. <laughs> Does it get better? No, no, not at all. It doesn't. Because it's not, it's not that there, there was no king in Israel. Is that the king wasn't in Israel. You see, this is the, the remedy wasn't, wasn't a man. The remedy was Jesus. The remedy was the king, was the authority. Again, judges. You can do what is right in your own eyes. And if you do, Judges illustrates the absolute mess that you will make of your life. But even if you do that, he's willing to bring about deliverance. See, if you live that period of life doing what's right in your own eyes and you make a total disaster of your life, even when you're not crying out to God, even when you're not verbally repenting, God sees you. And he says, you know what you need? A savior. And God sends deliverance. He seen, sends a better king. He sends us Jesus. So Father, we thank you for your word.